John Whitecross, in his work on the display of God's providence, he told of an occasion where Alexander Pedden, who was one of the Scottish Covenanters, along with others who were with him, had been pursued by persecutors for quite a lengthy distance on both horse and foot. Having garnered some distance between themselves and their persecutors, Pedden stood still and said, Let us pray here, for if the Lord hear not our prayer and save us, we are all dead men. Well, they prayed, and Pedden's prayer included petitions like this. He said, O Lord, this is the hour and power of thine enemies. They may not be idle, but hast thou no other work for them than to send them after us? Send them after them to whom thou wilt give strength to flee, for our strength is gone. He went on, and his petitions included things like this. He asked the Lord, twine them about the hill. And he asked the Lord that the Lord would cast the lap of his cloak essentially over himself, over those with him and over their things, and save them. And John Whitecross notes that God graciously answered his prayer by intervening in such a way so as to provide a mist between them and their persecutors. And then in the meantime, orders came that those persecutors might go in pursuit of another man by the name of James Renwick, who was another covenanter and a great group that was with him. It was a great work of deliverance. God, the God of the universe, used a mist, water droplets suspended in the cold air, and he used the timely report to end a pursuit and to begin another to deliver these men from their persecutors. Amazing. The Lord has no shortage of ways to deliver his people from their persecutors. But this didn't mean that Pedden's life was prisonless or painless. In 1673, for instance, Pedden was arrested in Scotland and he spent four years in prison along with 40 other Scottish covenanters. I think it's a good reminder to us that the Christian life is not one where Christians are always, if you will, the roadrunner and their persecutors are always wily e. Coyote. Oftentimes, Christians do not escape their persecutors. In God's design, like it was for Pedin, like it was for the apostles in the text that's before us, there are both deliverances and imprisonments. There are rescues and there are arrests. There are liberations and there are martyrdoms. That is a reality that you signed up for as a Christian. That there will be times, oftentimes, of both. It's the reality that we see depicted for us in the book of Acts, in the text that we're studying. Now, as we get into the text, let's first create a little bit of context. In our previous study of the book of Acts, we saw that the council who had wrongfully arrested the apostles for the crime of preaching Jesus and preaching in Jesus the resurrection, they began to deliberate as to how they would kill the apostles. Acts chapter 5, verse 33. The apostles, if you remember, wouldn't comply with their gag order to not preach about Jesus. As a matter of fact, when the council reminded them and asked them, did we not command you to stop preaching in this name? They saw that as a great opportunity to preach to them again in Jesus' name. And the apostles wouldn't comply with the gag order. So the same council that had wrongfully facilitated the shedding of Jesus' innocent blood looked in this moment to add to their guilt the murder of Jesus' 12 apostles. But you might recall, just like God used the timely report of a Philistine incursion to stop Saul from capturing David, 
he used the timely warning of a well-respected Pharisee within the council to stop the murderous plotting of the council. And that was a man by the name of Gamaliel, a Pharisee, who gave that warning. This was the same Gamaliel, who you might recall, was the mentor to Saul of Tarsus, who we better know as the Apostle Paul. Now many have wondered, in light of Gamaliel's counsel to the council, whether or not Gamaliel became a Christian. I so hope that he did become a Christian, but when we look at the evidence provided to us in history and in the scriptures, because there's no mention of that in the scriptures, then I would say the evidence points to no being the answer to that question. I say that for a couple of reasons alongside of the absence of that being found in the scriptures. Number one would be this. Um, the Mishnah, which is the collected oral traditions of Judaism compiled around 200 AD, it references Gamaliel in the most glowing of terms. It says about him that since he died, there has been no more reverence for the law and purity and abstinence died out at the same time. If he had become a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't expect there to be such a glowing review in the Mishnah concerning him. Another piece of evidence that comes much later, uh, Maimonides, who was a rabbi centuries later, he said that Gamaliel composed a prayer where he requested that God destroy the heretics, which was a reference to Christians. And so it does not seem from the evidence that we have that Gamaliel ever came to know Christ. But nevertheless, he's the one that God providentially uses, just like he used that report that came to Pedin's persecutors. Hey, stop chasing these guys. Go chase James Renwick. God providentially used Gamaliel's warning. And if you remember, his warning went something like this. He references two guys. You see this in the latter part of Acts chapter 5. He referenced a man by the name of Thuidus and a man by the name of Judas, Judas of Galilee. And he says these two guys basically had movements. They started movements. They started these usurpations, these rebellions of one kind or another. And you know what happened? They just fizzled out. The council didn't do anything to make them fizzle out. They just fizzled out. And so he was basically saying that the council ought to take a kind of wait-and-see approach. In Acts 5, verses 38 and 39, we see Gamaliel's counsel. He told the council, keep away from these men and let them alone. His reason? For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Now, I want to remind you of three things that I want you to remember with respect to that counsel. The first thing is this. Remember that Gamaliel had the wrong metric. That's the first thing I want you to remember. Why do I say that? Because there are plenty of religious movements and philosophical movements that have endured, if you will, the test of time. They have a lot of adherents. They have a lot of years under their belts, and they are by no means of God. So his metric was wrong. Just because something lasts for a while does not mean that that's of God. Lies can last for a long time as well. Not, they won't ultimately endure like the kingdom of God will endure, but nonetheless, lies can last for a long time. Gamaliel had the wrong metric. Second thing I want you to notice is this. Gamaliel's wait-and-see approach dismissed all of the evidence that was before his eyes. And he's like, all right, let's see. Let's, let's wait and see, because if this movement fizzles out, then you know, we know it's not of God. But if the movement lasts, then we know it's of God. And what you want to have in your mind is the fact that Gamaliel had an abundance of evidence before his eyes. 
He knew, like the Jews in Judea knew, of the miracles that Jesus did. How he made the lame to walk, the blind to see, the dead to rise, the deaf to hear, and so on. He knew about Jesus' miracles. He knew about the prophecies. He heard some of them from the apostles as the apostles made the case for Jesus. The evidence of prophecy fulfilled, he knew about the empty tomb. He knew about the apostles' miracles. He knew about the escape from prison that just happened and the lame man that was able to, made, to be made to walk before that. So he had all of this evidence right before his eyes. I say that so you know there was no need for all of the if statements. The evidence had been before his eyes. And I believe it was Alexander McLaren who had said, uncertainty is fashionable, but it is fatal. I want you to know, everyone in this room, upstairs, downstairs, wherever you are, I want you to know that either Jesus is the Messiah or he was like Judas of Galilee or Thuidus that Gamaliel was referencing. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. Jesus himself taught that. In Luke chapter 11, verse 23, it was Jesus who said, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Third thing I want you to remember. Third thing I want you to remember is this. Gamaliel was right about this. If the movement they opposed was of God, they wouldn't be able to stop it. That was true. That was 100% true. God cannot be thwarted. God's counsel will forever stand. There are a bunch of texts of Scripture that speak to that. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, Isaiah 46, verse 10. And note this. By Gamaliel's metric, Christianity has been proven to be of God. Okay, so that leads us right into our text. Here's what you're wondering as we get into our text. Gamaliel has warned the council, saying, don't touch these men, let them alone, don't try to kill them, essentially. Would the council take Gamaliel's counsel? That's what you're wondering. And we'll find out as we make our way right into the text. We continue our study in Acts chapter 5, verse 40, where we read, and they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. First thing I want you to note is this. Gamaliel's plan of action, his wait and see approach, was agreed upon by the council. Look at your text. See the word agreed right there? The word agreed in the New Testament uh, Greek text is patho. More literally, it means persuaded. Now this chapter, you might not recall, but if you go back into previous um, teachings, this chapter has had its share of irony. And here's a little bit more of that irony. The first time that the word patho is used, better translated as persuaded, it's in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 27, verse 20. And there we're told that the chief priests and elders, people who would to some degree comprise the council, they persuaded, there's that word patho, they persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So the irony is this. Now you have the persuaders of murder being persuaded not to murder. Ironic. But they wouldn't let the apostles just off the hook, you might say. They didn't just let them walk off. Notice what the text says. They had the apostles beaten. The word there in the New Testament Greek is the Greek verb dero. It could mean to beat, it could mean to scourge, it could mean to thrash, it could mean to skin. Here it likely refers to the flogging that would happen within the, um, within the council's jurisdiction. 
Namely, it would be something like this, 39 lashes. They would give 39, one less than the limit prescribed in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verse 3. You might say that the council wanted to be on the safe side, not going over the limit. Paul, the Apostle Paul, later on in history, would be on the receiving end of these kind of beatings. He said, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. So when you see the apostles beaten right here, likely with 39 stripes, you're thinking a lot about that, and we'll talk about that. But you're remembering that Paul himself had that kind of beating five times. Five times. Jesus warned his disciples that this would happen. He said, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. Matthew 10, 17. He told them this. This is what you're signing up for. You're going to proclaim me. You're going to have eternal life. But you're going to have a lot of hardship. He warned them that this kind of thing that you're reading about right here in Acts chapter 5, he warned them this thing was going to happen. This kind of thing. Jesus himself not only predicted their floggings, their whipping, but he also predicted his own, though his would be at the hands of Gentiles, at the hands of Romans. He said that the chief priests and the scribes would condemn him to death and, Matthew 20, verse 19, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. So I want you to see right here, that these apostles were being beaten for the Savior who was beaten for them. They were suffering for the Savior who had suffered for them. And I want to encourage every one of you not to look past this too quickly. I want you to stop for a moment. I want you to consider it. I want you to be impacted by it. I want it to produce introspection, and I want it to produce inspiration. By way of introspection, I think we would do well to ask ourselves these type of questions. You could say something like this. I see the Christianity that they lived. I see that Christianity cost them. And then you just want to ask yourself the question, what has it cost me? Have I endured some measure of mocking and reviling for speaking about Jesus and not doing what the world does or going where the world goes? Or do I avoid making certain decisions for Christ because I do not want the hardship? I don't want the pushback. I don't want the discomfort that will go with it. So I'm kind of pushing back from all hardship that I might suffer for Jesus' name. I don't want sacrifice. I don't want discomfort. And I kind of move away from it. If you feel like that, may the example of the apostles inspire you. May they move you from that kind of fearfulness. And may it move you by God's grace to courage. So first do introspection. Really ask yourself those kinds of questions. What has Christianity cost you? Has it cost you relationships? Has it made you uncomfortable at times? Is your life not as easy as it would be because you are following Christ and you have taken up your cross? You have to wonder if your Christianity has cost you absolutely nothing you have to wonder if you have actually taken up your cross to follow Jesus. You have to wonder if you truly believe this. Because Jesus said when you confess him before men, when you do those kind of things, 
it's not always going to be easy. People aren't going to always applaud you. They're not going to always say, great job, I finally understand that. They may mock you. They may revile you. They may spit upon you. They may start a fight with you. They may push you. They may imprison you. You don't know what people may do sometimes. But if you speak about Jesus enough, not everybody's going to say, that's great. That makes so much sense. I knew I couldn't make my way to God. I knew I needed a savior. I knew I was guilty. Thank you for finally telling me I don't have to climb the ladder of different world religions to make myself good before the eyes of an unknown deity, I can actually believe that God's son came down and took my punishment upon the cross. Not everybody's going to say that. A lot of people will roll their eyes and say, you're crazy. A lot of people will say a lot worse than that. And you just want to ask yourself, you want to say, has my Christianity cost me anything? And then you want to move from introspection, and I would argue you want to move to inspiration. You want to be inspired to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Imagine if you were there watching as the apostles are whipped, all 12 of them right there, getting whipped one time after another. Imagine yourself watching that, seeing how they follow Jesus, and imagine yourself being emboldened to follow Christ as you watched what they endured for him. D.A. Carson, he noted that uh, after Jim Elliott and his four missionary co-laborers, these men who sought to bring the gospel to the Alka Indians and died in their pursuit of bringing the gospel to the Alka Indians, he said that one of the unforeseen results of their sacrifice was that from the Christian college that they had graduated from, in the next decade or two that followed, there were so many more graduates who were willing to go to the missionary field in light of their sacrifice. It's as though the sacrifice of the Alka Five and the suffering of Jim Elliott and those four co-laborers made other Christians more willing to embrace the prospect of suffering for Jesus' name. So why do I say that? That can happen right here. You could look at the apostles' example and you could let their faithfulness fuel yours. So I urge you, I exhort you, don't shy away from the dirty look. Don't shy away from the condescending comment or the hostile reactions that you might receive for respectfully speaking about Jesus, for truly living for Jesus, don't shy away from those things. Well, the council had the apostles beaten. If you look at the end of verse 40, it says, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The question you're asking yourself at that point, would it work? I mean, they had commanded them last time to not speak in Jesus' name, but they didn't beat them last time. Now they've beaten them. Would it work? We'll find out, but what we are told next might be surprising to many. Verse 41 says, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They were what? They were rejoicing. They were doing what Jesus had commanded his disciples to do during the Sermon on the Mount. Remember during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, so there... During the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus told his disciples to rejoice because great was their reward in heaven. Right here, we see the apostles rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. For them, 
To bear dishonor for Jesus' name was an honor. It was a high dignity that they saw conferred upon them. Later on, the Apostle Paul, in Philippians 1.29, he would describe suffering for Christ to be a gift from God. In Philippians 1.29, the Apostle Paul told the Philippians who themselves were being persecuted, who themselves were suffering, he told them, for to you it has been granted, essentially gifted. Watch the two things that he speaks of being gifted, granted from God. He says, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ. Two things. Not only to believe in him. So Paul's telling the Philippians, that's part of what you've been gifted with. That faith that you have to believe in Jesus, it's been granted to you. It's a gift from God to you. It's a gracious, conferred gift. But then he goes on and he says, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. See, the Christian knows, as one commentator had put it, that he or she is not suffering for some abstract principle. But they suffer when they're persecuted in Jesus' name. They are suffering on behalf of Christ. I want you to see this. See how the world's value system and God's are so often at odds with one another. To the world, it is ludicrous to see a shameful beating as an honor conferred. I mean, there wasn't a crowd around the apostles where they're getting beaten saying, Yay, this is awesome. You are so honoring God. That's not what's happening. They're looking like fools. They'd be embarrassed to see themselves have some measure of their clothing off, and then they are getting whipped, they're getting beaten, their faces are grimacing, doubtless. They didn't have a crowd of people around them saying, you're doing it, you're doing it for Jesus' name. So in the world's vantage point, this would be ludicrous to think of this as some kind of honor. To the world, if you don't receive the world's applause, imagine the world saying this to you, as it were. If you don't receive my applause... You're a failure. If you don't receive my honor, you're a nobody. If you do receive my blows and beatings, you ought to be ashamed of yourself and repent. You ought to leave Christ, and we will love you as our own. But in God's economy, demonstrating the worth of his son gets at the very pinnacle for why you and I even exist. And that's what they were doing right here. You might remember what Satan told God in Job chapter 2, verse 4. His perception of human beings was something like this. He told God, all that a man has, he will give in exchange for his life. In other words, from Satan's vantage point, the greatest priority for any human being, generally speaking, is himself. You start taking away his comfort. You start adding pain. You watch how quickly they will curse you. Because all that a man has, he will give in exchange for his life. And generally speaking, that is true. In our natural state, at the end of the day, that's how we would be if left to ourselves. But I want you to see how great the grace of God is displayed in a person. When a person can so esteem Christ as the ultimate priority that it is thought that suffering for him is an honor. Not only does it conform us to his image, but it advances his cause. It exalts his infinite worth. Think of how worthy Jesus is shown to be when people are suffering like the apostles were, and they say, it's worth it for him. That's how great he is. That's how much more important he is than me. We trust him. We love him. He is to be exalted and extolled. 
It gets at the very reason for why we exist. And I want to remind you that this kind of work of the Holy Spirit isn't limited to just people who are found in the pages of Scripture. You might say, oh, that's just the apostles. Of course that happens in them. Uh, they had the same Holy Spirit in them that if you're a Christian, you have inside of you. Let me remind you, plenty of people outside of the pages of Scripture have seen the Spirit's joy invade their pain. Richard Wormbrand, who is um, one of the founders of Voice of the Martyrs, Kent Hughes I recalled hearing him speak about the joy that he had during his time in a Romanian prison. Wormbrand was an evangelical minister who, as uh, one uh, page had noted, endured 14 years of communist imprisonment and torture in his homeland of Romania. Hughes spoke about hearing Wormbrand speak, and he said that during that time, when he was in prison for those 14 years, there were times where he was beaten, he had chunks of his flesh ripped out of him, he was sentenced to solitary confinement. And amidst the pain that he was enduring, there would be times where he was in his prison cell and he was so overcome with joy that even in his weakened state, he would stand and dance around his cell. See, when Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And when Peter says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter, you can be reminded that people outside of the pages of Scripture have had the Holy Spirit invade their pain, invade their circumstances when they have suffered for Jesus' name. And I want you to be encouraged, now in a general sense. Christian, regardless of where you are, regardless of what you're going through, in any moment that you find yourself in, God can invade your pain with joy, ultimately because if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you. And Jesus has promised that he would never leave you or forsake you. Well, the council inflicts its punishment upon the apostles, and we come back to the question that I had just posed to you. Would it work? Would it stop them? Would it be different this time? How about this? Would it slow them down? Let's see. Last verse of Acts chapter 5, verse 42 says, And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. What a model of unabated, undaunted, and unwearied service for Christ these imperfect apostles were. Don't miss the language. The text tells us that the lashes didn't slow them down. Well, how do you know that? We're told daily in the New Testament Greek, literally every day. Every day, you combine that with the other description, they did not cease doing what? Whether they were in the temple precincts or whether they were going from house to house, they kept proclaiming and teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. He's that promised Messiah. He's the one who would bear our iniquities. He's the one upon whom Yahweh would lay the iniquities of us all. He is that suffering servant through whom we can have forgiveness of sins. He's that one that David spoke of in Psalm 22. He's that one that David spoke of in Psalm 16. He's the one who was pierced for our transgressions. He was the one who rose from the grave. He is the Messiah. They didn't slow down. They kept going. They kept preaching. And I want you to be encouraged by their example. You'll see later on in the book of Acts, Paul lived like this as well. Paul would get beaten, go to another place, preach, get beaten, go to another place, maybe escape a beating and keep preaching. Just kept going. 
And that's what they're doing here. These men are to be a great encouragement for us. I would want, I want for every one of you to have Acts 5.40 to um, Acts 5.42 in your mind as a kind of picture. That they're beaten, then they rejoice, and then they keep on preaching. Have it as kind of a picture in your mind so that you might be encouraged in your work to make Christ known and to serve him. Have it there. It's a mental picture. Don't lose it. Try to hold on to it, even now. Frank Allen tells of how Charles Simeon, he was a pastor in the late 1700s and uh, early 1800s. He had a picture of a man by the name of Henry Martin in his study. Now, Simeon, who was a pastor, had been a mentor to this younger man, Henry Martin. Henry Martin became a missionary, and he spent six years on the mission field before dying at the age of 31. He was a missionary to India, and he was a missionary to Persia. And he was known, this young man, for laboring intensely and incessantly for Christ. Martin noted that um, after his arrival in India, he met another well-known missionary by the name of William Carey. And he said when he met Carey that his life was basically greatly challenged. And he recorded in his journal the following. He said, I have hitherto lived to little purpose, more like a clod than a servant of God. Now let me burn out for God. So that's Henry Martin, his reaction after seeing this other missionary, William Carey. So anyway, Charles Simeon has a picture of Henry Martin in his study, and Simeon would note that there would be times when he was preparing, he'd be moving around his study, and he said that the picture of Martin seemed to say to him, as it were, by his example, be earnest, do not trifle, do not trifle. And Simeon would note that he would respond to how he imagined his missionary friend encouraging him by smiling and saying, I will be earnest. I will. I will not trifle, for the souls are perishing, and Jesus is to be glorified. Spurgeon noted the same story as well, and he said that he had a picture somewhere in his study, somewhere around him, of the soul winner Henry Hull. He said the, same, the picture said essentially the same thing to him. Be earnest, do not trifle, watch for souls as one that must give an account. I share that to say this. You could find great encouragement to labor for Christ as you see others who have labored faithfully for Christ. Whether it is like a Charles Simeon, whether it is like a Henry Hall, whether it is like a Henry Martin, or right here in the text, the apostles. Don't just observe it. Don't just say, oh, interesting history. No, be compelled by that history. They're examples for you and I. They're making Christ known at the expense of their well-being. They're putting a lot on the line. They're risking it. You, be inspired by that. Don't just leave here having observed it. Be impacted by it. Be changed by it. Have a mental picture. You don't need to have a picture of Henry Martin in your study. You don't need to have a picture of Henry Hall. You don't need to kind of construct a picture of the apostles getting beaten and then going and preaching. You could have it in your mind. Let the scripture be there and be compelled to labor for Jesus' name. You labor as one who has been loved by God and saved by the grace of Christ. That's why you labor. You don't labor to earn Christ's love. You labor because you have received Christ's love in the gospel. You don't labor to receive forgiveness. You labor because you have received forgiveness in the gospel and you want to make known the way of forgiveness. And when you see men like this suffering for the gospel, you say, I want to embrace whatever the cost is to make Jesus Christ known. You've seen, you've probably seen the way people on those cooking shows um, garner such focus right? To prepare the best meal that they can for the judges before the time runs out. You've seen that before. They sweat. 
They make haste. They bring the best focus they can to bring the best that they can muster, the most finest dish that they can bring about to present to the judges. And I want to say to you who are in Christ, brethren, redeem the time. There's only a certain allotment of it. As one who has been granted repentance from the prince of life who tasted death that you might forever live, joyfully labor, even as the apostles did, to present your Savior with the finest offering of your life that you can. I think Acts chapter 5 is an, such an important reminder of how important the message of life in Christ is and how it is worth living for and suffering for and even worth dying for. That's how precious this message of life in Christ and the forgiveness of sins only being found through him is. I close with asking this question. Have you believed this message? They were willing to die for this message. And the message that they were willing to die for is the only way you can avoid dying in your sins. The message that they suffered for is the only way to avoid the unending suffering of the wrath to come. Faith in the Christ that they proclaimed is the only way that a person can be forgiven of their sins, spared from the wrath to come, and enjoy everlasting life with the Lord. So I just want to ask you to ask yourself the following four questions, rather simply. Just ask yourself, do I believe that I am a sinner? If you haven't come to believe the message, ask yourself this. Do I believe that I'm a sinner? Do I believe that I've broken God's law? So this is kind of a subsidiary of that first question. Have I lied? Have I coveted? Have I lusted? Have I put something before God? Have I used God's name in vain? Do I see myself as a sinner? So that's the first question you want to ask yourself. Second question you want to ask yourself is this. Do I need a Savior? So if you see that you are a sinner, the next question is, do you think that you need a Savior? Remember, the angel told Joseph, you're going to call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. If you see that you are a sinner, do you believe that you need a Savior? And if you say, I do believe I need a Savior, well, then the next question is, do I believe that Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only way in which my sins could be paid for? Not my works, but his work, his perfect life, and his sacrificial death. That's the next question you want to ask. Do I believe that's the way? That it's not by doing more good that I erase my bad. It's only in God sovereignly placing my punishment upon Jesus that God is shown to be a just judge who doesn't just say, you know what, I'm going to let all of your sin go because you did more good than bad, which is a lie. We don't do more good than bad. But if we thought that anyway, what happens to all of the sins that we've committed? Do you say, I believe that Jesus paid the judicial penalty standing in my place to die for my sins? And you ask, do I believe that he actually rose from the dead and is the Messiah? And if your answer to those four questions are yes, 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 and yes, the evidence that that's truly the conviction of your heart, that you really believe that, will be repentance. You'll say, there's a change of direction. I've had a change of thinking. I actually believe he's my savior. I believe he died for me. I can't be the Lord of my life anymore. I can't think my good's going to outweigh my bad. I have had a change of direction you will go public with that profession of faith in baptism. This will be the evidence that the yes, the yes, the yes, and the yes are true yeses. And you won't say, I'm just going to guess what he wants for me. 
You're going to say, I can't settle for just guessing or making up what I think Jesus wants for me. I, I'm his sheep. He said my sheep know my voice. They follow me and I give them eternal life. I have to know what he wants from me. I have to hear his voice and do what he has called me to do. Don't settle for imagining what you would think God wants for you. You must know it for yourself as you study the word of God. So I exhort you, may you believe this amazing gospel if you haven't already. And if you have come to believe this gospel in light of what we've studied today, may you be freshly committed to living in light of it and making it known. Oh, I pray that the picture of Acts 5 verses 40 to 42 has been to some degree burned in your mind and that it will compel you and have an ongoing ripple effect of obedience, of courage, of worship that is produced in your life as you think of the worthiness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the infinite worth of your eternally begotten son who took on flesh. Thank you for his sacrificial death and the good news of this message that is worth living for and is worth suffering and even dying for. Father, we pray that you'd help us. We have no confidence in and of ourselves to beget such courage. Uh, we know if left to ourselves, we would wither. We would shrink back. So our confidence is not in us, Lord. Our confidence is in your grace and in your spirit. Help us, Father, to appraise rightly the honor that it is to suffer some measure of dishonor and shame for Jesus' name. I pray for your people in this room that they will not shrink back, put their light under a bushel, I pray, Heavenly Father, that with love and respect, they would make the message known, that they would live a life that befits the gospel with consistency and kindness and truthfulness. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you might help us to be lovingly bold out of great love for the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.